This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. It's two minutes after seven. Welcome to it. You're listening to Classic Business Breakfast with myself, Nastasia Aronsa. Not alone this morning, the Man United jersey is back after this weekend's win. Can you even blame me? I mean, it's an absolutely <laughs> resounding weekend. But a whole lot more still to come. I, I know Greg and I are very happy this morning. Uh, yeah, you you should be. Um, there's a lot of sad fans out there, particularly Chelsea fans. But hey. Yep. Look, it uh, doesn't rain, it pours, doesn't it? Nonetheless, uh, we've got some some news that could make you a little bit happier. Uh, according to Brenda Martin, who's the CEO of the South African Wind Energy Association, she reckons that uh, President Sol Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address delivered this past Thursday brought much appreciated investor clarity to the South African energy sector. So we'll speak to her a little bit later on the show why that is the case and what is happening in the energy sector. But most importantly, I'm curious to know what the SA Wind Energy Association does so we'll speak to her uh, much later in the show and speaking about energy we just saw load shedding return yesterday and what was a shock and surprising move there by escom which implemented stage two then of load shedding one would have thought that perhaps it was over or were we just naive in that regard and is it really just a once-off or is this expected to continue for some time we'll find out about that in just a moment or two so do stay around for that one and then we turn our attention to the findings from the Yoko Small Business Pulse for the fourth quarter of last year. You remember, you may remember the company Yoko we've had. Uh, they found us uh, a couple of months ago on the show uh, doing our entrepreneurship feature. So we'll find out what uh, the Pulse entails and what are some of the findings that uh, they managed to pick up within the small business segment. And the uh, metal engineering sector set for a third consecutive year of growth. So this is some positive of news for the sector which has of course been struggling as uh, some of the uh, manufacturers in the sector continue to struggle michael aid from cifsa joins us uh, at around 7:30, and we chat to him about how continued growth in this sector is going to be significant and necessary for growth in south africa all that and more is coming up this is classic business breakfast with MoneyWeb. arabile gumede and astasia aronsa on classic 1027 wasn't the greatest tone and the way to end things on Friday with the JSE uh, heading lower by uh, close of trade. And this was because of a risk-off tone, particularly in global markets, with Sasol seemingly leading those losses 6.5% down to close trade at 384 rand a share. That's after reporting that the development costs at its Lake Charles project in the United States uh, had once again run over budget. It did, however, say it expects headline earnings per share for the six months to end December to rise by about 32%, but that was not enough to allay investor fears. Global sentiment uh, was risk-off, as I said, with the U.S.-China trade war weighing as well uh, on sentiment. Uh, Donald Trump also said on Thursday that he, uh, he would probably not meet his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping before a trade truce expires on March the first so now it's about uh, how to get that deal sorted and of course five more days until the uh, the funding runs out as well uh, and perhaps is seeing the united states return 
to a shutdown. The all share falling 1.2% on Friday to hit 53,244 points. Uh, the resources index gave up nearly 2%. The industrials one and a third percent. Platinum stocks uh, added 1.8%. Uh, and uh, for the whole week, it seems the all share as well losing 1.2%. It's 1361 for a US dollar, 1541 for a euro, 1764 a, a British pound. Um, while out in Asia now, as things begin to return, it's 2% down for the Nikkei, uh, while the Shanghai Composite is up 8 tenths of a percent at 2,639 points. The Hang Seng Composite, uh, the Hang Seng rather, uh, is uh, up a tenth of a percent, just below 28,000 points. $1,311, a fine ounce for gold platinum at $793, $61.64 a barrel. That's for Brent crude. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's just gone seven minutes after seven and joining us in studio to talk more in-depthly on the markets is Greg Davies, who's the head of wealth at Kratos Capital. Greg, thank you so much for your time. During the latter part of last week, when you looked at the global market picture, it suddenly weirdly turned a little bit negative and for me watching that it just i suppose reinforced how uh investors are quite sensitive to any changes in the narrative around the u.s china trade developments what was your take on what happened let's say both on the global and the local side yeah like as Ari billy pointed out in the opening the uh, the big story last week was Cecil. Um, the share price being clattered down from around 412 rand back to around 386, even though they said they were going to increase earnings. Um, but yeah, interesting what you were saying on the, on the general markets. Um, suddenly towards the end of the week, the sort of risk off, the JSC sold off. We're back to 53,200. And for foreign markets looking again at um, US-China negotiations, that seems to be looking less and less likely that something positive will be resolved in the short term. On the, uh, the topic of Sasol, I think it was about four months ago that uh, investors were told that the Lake Charles chemical plant is on track and it'll cost about, I think, $11.1 uh, billion. And, but now it, it comes across as though, you know, the costs may run up. Um, from your perspective, what's the big concern for you uh, when we're talking Sasol and that uh, chemical plant? Yeah, the, co- the cost overruns and I mean, it's in dollars and the amount of money, I think the big figure is about 140 billion South African rands being spent there, uh, 94% completed. But also, they'll be going into the gas space in the US and most of those gas energy companies in the US are trading at discounts to their net asset value. So maybe the market saying, okay, you've got this project, it might have overrun, you're 94% complete. But once it's up and running, it doesn't mean, you know, that, that there's going to be plain sailing in terms of share price from there. I mean, projects overrun all the time. Um, from your experience, I mean, looking at Sasol over the many years, you've probably have paid attention to it. Um, do they have a track record of delivering projects on time? Well, th- this is the biggest. I mean, and that is always the thing, the execution risk, as they call it. This, this is the biggest project. that they've. You know, obviously, they need to diversify away from coal here in South Africa, converting to oil. But this, they, don't, they have a track record of getting most things done locally. But this is the first foray into the U.S. Um, I, you know, they, they have to give investors comfort that uh, this, this can come to an end soon. Okay, Cecil, uh, disappointing on that front. News perhaps last week that made you smile? 
Yeah, well, just <laughs> just Manchester United, really. Um, the state of the nation was quite quite positive. Yeah. I thought Mr. Ramaphosa had some some good ideas. Um, you're cracking down on corruption, break breaking up of Eskom, so that certainly was a positive. Okay, looking into this week, we've got quite a few numbers coming out. Be it uh, Kuro, Goldfields, Harmony, Italtal, Discam, City Lodge, Amira, uh, Resilient, uh, as well. I think they're also due to report numbers this week. Which one of those will you be paying close? Um, probably in terms of the the, the data, the, the retail sales data, which will be coming out on, on Wednesday. Um, you know, we've sort of picked up from Shoprite's numbers, pick and pay, spa, all of those. The numbers have been poor, so we we just need to see: are, are they cannibalizing? Are they taking business away from each other, or is the consumer just spending a lot less? Um, on the results front, probably resilience be quite interesting. I see a, a headline on the business today. Today, we're about resilience, saying the investigation by the FSCA will take another six months to resolve. So it's going to be interesting to see the numbers that they put out. But they are working. I think the last I checked, they had their own um, investigation running alongside uh, the FSCA's one. Um, I suppose the uncertainty around resilient will probably drag on towards uh, the rest of 2019. You know, it's interesting, and there is so much uncertainty. There was a letter written by, I think, 10 in, in investing institutions to them asking for some answers. These question marks against the company, but the share price has slowly been recovering, certainly on resilient. The other one which was attacked was the Nepi Rock Castle, which is in the stable. That was attacked by Viceroy, and, that, and they they attacked it when the share price was around 116, but it's powered its way back to about 126. So sort of <laughs> up to its name, it really is resilient, that group. <laughs> Right. Okay, then, uh, so we've mentioned uh, Resilient. Any of the others? Discam uh, seems to be the one most people would look out for as well. Yeah, certainly, because, you know, the, the big fight in, in that space is between clicks and Discam. The click share price has been very, very strong. Discam share price, not so much. And the market is wondering why that's happening. Theoretically, they're in the, in the same space. So market will be holding its breath for those numbers. Okay, looking at the global uh, picture that is information or news that you're going to be keeping an eye on brexit is still looming in the background we still have u.s china uh trade relations and the last i checked i don't know maybe this narrative may have changed a bit president trump saying that he might not meet with xi jinping on march 1st and i think that scared investors a little bit Yes, I think that was the beginning of, of the sort of negative sentiment that, that we saw. I mean, it, it was a really strange week because we started off Monday quite weak. Then Tuesday, Wednesday, the, the all share pushed to, to highs for the year. We're back well over 54,000. It looked like 55,000 was possible. Then Thursday, Friday, sell off back to 53,244. So we, what you're picking up there is a lack of confidence in, in equity markets in general, perhaps trigger, triggered by Mr. Trump, but uh, we, we followed the, the world market slower. It's also been a quiet week because China's had uh, Chinese New Year, and so we haven't been able to see the share price of 10 cents and all of that. So I'm looking forward to all of them coming back online this week. Here's somebody we haven't spoken about in a long time, Arby Lynn. I take full responsibility for this one none other than my one of my favorite people elon musk so (laughs) yeah you've certainly been slacking on that one so uh news out of the wall street uh journal saying that tesla is cranking out uh the model threes uh it now has to service them as a lot of the tesla owners are complaining about long waits for repairs and elon musk says improving maintenance is a priority this year here's a question it's a bit of a fun question for you guys have you ever thought about purchasing a tesla and would you purchase one if it were to be available in the south african market 
I think it's too. It, it might be too pricey for me. But if I could afford it and all those details, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm not 100% sure. I think I'm not convinced on, on the whole thing yet. Really? Why? Yeah. You've never been convinced about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. So can, um... you, can you blame me as well? <laughs> <laughs> With good reason, I think, on that front. <laughs> Greg, a Tesla? No, I, I think especially for the innovators, sometimes you have to leave them. I would wait for Mercedes or BMW with that being a snob. To, to, to get into electric vehicles and then and then go that route. <laughs> All right. We'll have to leave it there. But Greg uh, Davies is still with us throughout the show. He's from Kratos Capital. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. So a whole host of news that obviously happened this weekend, and particularly uh, even yesterday, ESCOM announcing that it will start implementing Stage 2 load shedding. And that was from 1 p.m. to 10 p.m. yesterday. It was the first time that the power utility had had load shedding for at least two months. Uh, It was days just after President Cyril Ramaphosa had, uh, of course, announced that splitting up of uh, the power utility into those three different segments. Uh, The uh, the spokesperson is who we're meant to speak to, and we'll hopefully continue to try and get him on the line there. But, of course, even the uh, unions certainly not happy with the decision to split up uh, ESCOM as it currently stands. But that uh, stage two rotational load shedding from yesterday has gotten a few people perhaps uh, a, a smidge worried. Is this a constant feature? Is this something we're going to have to prepare ourselves for that it happens intermittently? Or is this now going to be uh, a roster or uh, something that happens a little more regularly? Kulu Pasiwe, the spokesperson of ESCOM, joins us on the line now. Kulu, thank you so much for your time this morning. Is this going to be a regular occurrence? Has load shedding returned? Ravili, unfortunately, it looks like load shedding has returned. And a few seconds ago, before you called me, I got a confirmation from the National Control saying that, unfortunately, again today, we will be implementing stage two load shedding in the next two hours from 9 o'clock until 10 o'clock this evening. What this means, Ravili, just to allay fears of uh, some of our listeners, it's called comfort. I know load shedding is happening. But starting from 9 o'clock until 10 o'clock, it does not mean people are not going to have power from that duration of time. What it means is that based on the uh, load shedding schedules that municipalities and ESCOM have designed, the, each area will have uh, at least a minimum of four hours. But not everyone will be affected today. Some people are not even on the roster for today, and therefore they will not be affected. But those who will be affected, they will be affected for a maximum of about four hours. Will people be uh, able to view a schedule of sorts on the uh, on the ESCOM website? Yes, ESCOM customers, those who are getting electricity directly from ESCOM, yes, they are able to do so. Many people are supplied by municipalities, in, for example, in the broader Johannesburg area or wherever people live in Tuani and everywhere else. They need to check with their municipalities. Municipalities also are being asked to do uh, what they can in terms of making sure that, that this information becomes public in um, a number of platforms that people have access to so that people know whether they are affected today or not. Kulu, let's let's talk about the reasoning behind this now. Is this, you know, some, you know, there are even some speculators saying that this 
may uh, perhaps help you helps you make the case a little bit more for those uh, for those hikes that you seek as escom uh, from nursa what is the primary reasoning behind this set of load shedding you know Aravile, we are running an old power system and uh it being old on its own is not a problem necessarily the problem with escom is that escom has not been doing the requisite maintenance on its power system so the older the power system gets the more maintenance you need to do. And ESCOM has not been doing this for a number of years now, and uh, for various reasons. At some point, for example, in the run-up to 2010 World Cup, this company, together with government, they had taken a decision that uh, they're not going to do maintenance because at the time, you will recall that ESCOM had a policy of keeping the lights on at all costs. And at all costs essentially meant that they had to defer maintenance from time to time. And unfortunately, all of these things are catching up on us now. So it's going to take uh, quite a, a long time before we can catch up with all the maintenance that we need to do. It's going to be very costly because some of these machines, I'm afraid, some of them have been run so hard and so long. And unfortunately, some of these things are not beginning to break down automatically, which is what we are seeing now. But uh, um, this morning, um, 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 Arabile, at 8 o'clock, management is going to have another meeting to try to see if that we can do. We are also running our most expensive generators, which is the diesel generators, to avoid the, the, the collapse or what we call a, a, the total blackout of the power system. We are running them now, but even those ones, not all of them are running because... Uh, um, some of them are running at uh, low capacity, low levels of diesel, and therefore we need to uh, replenish diesel. We also need to replenish water for the pumps in storage. You know, Aravile, if I uh, were to be crude, we are not where we should be as a company and as a country. So just to confirm then, you're saying that ESCOM currently running its most expensive generators then? We are running the most expensive generators, diesel generators. Those ones, they are only meant to be uh, operated when uh, um, the system is constrained and you are trying to avoid load shedding. But uh, we are running them now, even though we're going to be implementing load shedding, essentially to avoid what we call uh, an automatic shutdown. An automatic shutdown is uh, not where you want to be because uh, that one, we have seen through the experiences of California. California, for those who remember, I think it was 2001, they had a, a total shutdown there, and the system took a minimum of about two weeks. And they could, on, they could do two weeks, they could afford two weeks, because they have neighbors who all, all also have enough generating capacity to help them. In South Africa, we don't have that luxury. Our neighbors, many of them don't even have more than 3,000 megawatts, so you can't rely on them. In fact, many of them are relying on South Africa. Yeah. So to avoid a total collapse of the system, you would rather implement load shedding so that you can avoid a blackout. Could you very finally, do you know how long load shedding will be going on for? Is there a sort of a, site, a set time period, one week, two weeks, or is this going to really just be dependent on how quickly you can get things up and running? Yes, it all depends. It's all dependent on how fast we can uh, get the system back on track. But yesterday I heard our chief operating officer saying that um, we are likely to remain vulnerable up to uh, April this year. It doesn't mean that they'll be loitering every day until April, but there will be instances and days like today where the system is severely compromised and we will be forced to implement loitering.
Kulupasiva, thank you so much. Despite it being a little bit of sad news there, but confirming indeed that load shedding will continue. Stage two load shedding continues today uh, in South Africa, um, and that will happen between 9 a.m. and 10 p.m. this evening. Management set to host a meeting at 8 a.m. this morning, which is in around 40 minutes or so, with regards to trying to fix the problem. And ESCOM currently running its most expensive generators, which are the diesel generators there. Um, and uh, Kulu, uh, really sentiments are that we're not um, where we should be as a nation with regards to that. And this comes just days after President Cyril Ramaphosa did announce the splitting up of ESCOM into those three parts. Let's see how things go from here on in. Uh, a little late to it, but let's get to your traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's 24 minutes after 7. According to Brenda Martin, CEO of the South African Wind Energy Association, President Sol Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address delivered this past Thursday brought much appreciated investor clarity to the South African energy sector. And to talk to us a little bit about it uh, is Brenda herself, and she joins us on the line. Brenda, thank you so much for your time this morning. Before we get into uh, the State of the Nation that was delivered by uh, President Ramaphosa, let's talk about the South African Wind Energy Association. What do you do? We seem to have uh, lost Brenda there for a bit, but we'll try to get her back on the line just to understand what the uh, Wind Energy Association does. Let's try it one more time. Uh, Brenda, you're on the line. I am. There we are. Um, so before we get into the State of the Nation address, let's talk about what the association does. Uh, what's your mandate? We represent the wind energy um, industry in South Africa. We have a, a the, the primary mandate is to utility scale wind power. We also um, access and and uh, address issues of cost cutting interest within renewable energy generally. So there are many issues in South Africa's industry that are not limited to wind power. All right. Now back to Sona that was delivered on Thursday. Why do you believe that it brought uh, much investor clarity to the sector? Um, because there was such a, a consistent, clear message around issues like investment, the fact that there's a, a strong commitment to investment growth, that clean energy itself was uh, was particularly focused on, and that there was a reference to the public-private growth initiative, which is a initiative that has been um, underway with the um, planning, um, the minister responsible for planning in the presidency, which Sawia has been part of that process. Um, and we have there was clear linkages between the work we've been doing in that space, where we've been talking about the obstacles to investment and ongoing contribution to the economy of our business and what it is that we um, require as an enabling environment. One of the key issues that I think has dominated headlines over the past couple of years or for as long as I can remember has always just been ESCOM and the news that, uh, you know, they are planning on separating the entities uh, at ESCOM into generation, transmission and distribution. What are your thoughts on that move? Well, that has been something that many people have been calling for over probably at least a decade. Um, There have been 
uh, there's been the ISMA bill, which uh, we uh, I don't know if you're aware of the Independent System Market Operator Bill, which uh, made it into Parliament and then uh, was dropped at some point. There's been a recognition over quite some time of the value of ensuring that there's a separation between ESCOM's vested interest in recovering um, money from its investments that it makes in coal through sales and the fact that there is a need for a diverse mix which A, provides energy security and B, ensures that there's a, re a steady tariff decline over time as, as power that is um, more affordable is purchased. From where you're sitting, are we having a clear communication when it comes to renewable energy and perhaps even this move around uh, the separation of or rather the splitting up of ESCOM into three? Because there's always concern around uh, job losses, which the unions raise all the time. And I'm wondering whether we are actually having clear communication and everybody's sitting on the same page. What's your view on that? I'm not sure. It could be a mix of, of poor communication, but it's also we have to always recognize a mix of interests that are clashing and around the energy transition because bear in mind that this economy has been so deeply committed to a coal um, investment for, for many, many um, decades. There's a, so there's a very big resistance to moving away from that. Besides that, there is some uncertainty and, and misunderstanding around the fact that when you have an energy transition, you don't have that happening overnight. And when you have the transition occur, you have new opportunities that arise. So I am hoping that it won't be this level of resistance to the energy transition won't um, continue forever. There's a, there's a very um, confusing uh, set of understandings around ESCOM itself and what it has what has led to a situation that it's in at the moment, especially around uh, its financial position and, a, and a, a bizarre association of that problem with IPPs, which actually contribute less than 5% to the power mix. So there's many issues that need to be understood. They're very complex and, and it is also very understandable that people are concerned that this change will result in immediate suffering, which nobody wants. Brenda, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Brenda Martin, who's the CEO of the South African Wind Energy Association. And an article that might, uh, you know, that kind of relates to the conversation we've been having, you can find on the Money website titled, It's War Over ESCOM Privatization Plans. And it talks about the unbundling of ESCOM announced by Ramaphosa being a declaration of war for trade unions. Uh, you can find that on the front page of the Money website. But for now, let's have a look at news headlines. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronson on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Well, things to, seem to be going a little bit better for the metals and engineering sector, which is now set to grow for what is a third consecutive year in 2019. And this is despite the past year having been generally challenging as well for both and the globe uh, for the global and domestic front uh, the steel and engineering industries federation of south africa that CIFSA, uh, releasing its state of the metals and engineering sector report uh, just this past week and of course that positive sentiment coming through from them let's chat 
to CIFSA's chief economist, Dr. Michael A. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Then expanding 1.8% in uh, 2019, that's a, that's a really positive number considering that uh, this is a sector that has uh, struggled of late, seeing you know, even some companies uh, falter as well. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I think it's a very positive number. Uh, you see, what is happening is that it's very happy that we've been able to, to stabilize the sector um, because the sector has been under a lot of duress prior to 2017. So in 2017, there was a positive growth. In last year, there was a growth of 2.8%. So the 1.8% this year, we feel that is actually a moderation in growth. So this year, we published a report under a specific theme which is sharpening the saw, continuously improving industry activity and competitiveness. Because we feel that after you stabilize the sector, the sector you need to rebound. So obviously there are still challenges. There are still challenges that are still there. We have structural challenges that are very prevalent. Uh, we have issues of unemployment because if you compare 2017 and 2018, the sector actually lost about 8,000 jobs, uh, partly because of the increase in capital intensity. From 2010 to 2018, there was uh, an increase in capital intensity for om- of almost 13%. So it actually shows you that most companies are producing under increasing costs and diminishing returns, tend to let go of labor. So even though output is it's positive, we still have challenges that are still evident in the sector. And that's why we published it under this specific thing to ensure that we try and deal with the structural challenges that the sector is facing. In, in a time when there's a lot of protectionism and people are just mainly worried about their own economies and uh, adding tariffs to, to all their goods that they put out for trade, uh, how, how significant and how important is it to you know, place yourself correctly with the right partners, finding the right markets, especially right now? Yeah, it's very important because if you look at, like you, like you rightly mentioned, increasing protectionism, uh, which is actually driven by geopolitics, so it's very important to ensure that we we partner with the with the right uh, um, country, the right organizations. But I think what is what is very good for the sector is that the sector is part of South Africa, which is part of BRICS, and and BRICS, you know, China is a very important player within BRICS. So we, what we need to do is we need to ensure that we take advantage of opportunities that arise on the continent in terms of if you look at um, the, the, the relationship that China is building with other African countries. We need to ensure that we maximize on that. And also, of course, with the United States, which came out as, um, the, as a very important export destination from the report, we also need to ensure that we capitalize on, on AGUA, the existing unilateral agreement that is in place. So we need to look at all of those uh, possibilities that will help to boost export competitiveness from the sector. Keeping the sector alive is, is going to be very significant and very trying, I suppose, as we said, as we mentioned with all of these uh, protectionist values and thoughts. Um, are we finding the right markets? Are we, and, and where are those markets now, perhaps, to look into to say this is perhaps the best uh, growth areas? Is sub-Saharan Africa still the place to look? Are we looking to our BRICS counterparts? How significant is perhaps something like the intra-African trade deal, which is being organized now, to boost the, the, whether it be the manufacturing, whether it be the imports or exports of, uh, of goods and services within the metals and engineering sector? Yeah, what we find interestingly from the study is that we found that the export destination are still the same. 
even though there was changes in terms of market share in the export destinations, we found out the rest of Africa is still very important export destination, and uh, followed by Asia and Europe. And then, by, and then the, the Americas came forth. But what was very interesting is that there was an uptick in market share of exports to, to the rest of Africa, uh, with, of course, the SADC and, the, and SACU become uh, very prominent in this dynamic. And we also found that there was also an increase in market share in exports to the America. So what we'll be telling our members is to ensure that we increase our export competitiveness to the rest of the continent, explore other regional economic, uh, economic communities apart from the SADC, and also look at exports to the U.S. It's very important. Those are the two dynamics. Uh, we found that in terms of Asia and Europe, there was a slowdown in exports, of course, because of additional logistic costs. So that was a cause for concern. And there are other advantages that we can take, um, we, we can capitalize on in terms of the African continental free trade area. We know of the huge market potential that the, that the, that the agreement is going to have. And we're also worried about trade, uh, this trade war that is happening in the continent. We know Tanzania and Kenya, for example, are having trade tensions. Um, those are things that are also of concern. It's high import penetration. We tend to import more than we export, especially if, uh, from Asia, that is also a cause for concern. But all in all, we think there's possibility for us to continue to grow and export to other African markets and also to the U.S. Uh, it, it does sound uh, quite uh, promising as well, ensuring some resilience, yeah. especially in the sector. Is there? Are you getting some, enough support? You you reckon uh, from whether it be authorities, policymakers, uh, the private sector? On the whole, are you getting sufficient support, whether it be in the way of personnel, whether it be in the form of funding for better services, better manufacturing facilities, etc., etc.? Yes, there is, there is support. There is support. All through our interactions with policymakers, we've been, we've been putting forward our case. I think this is the essence of ensuring that we publish this report on an annual basis because it's a going concern. We need to also continuously highlight the challenges that the sector is facing and also highlight the progress that the sector is making. So there's been, there's been support. There's been support in terms of uh, funding, in terms of uh, available um, um, uh, help for companies that are struggling in terms of uh, electricity costs. Uh, what we're trying to encourage policymakers to try and promote is to, to ensure that we have a designation enforcement mechanism in place because we have certain sectors, certain products that have been designated for, for localization, but our concern is that uh, these designation requirements are not being adhered to. So we need to ensure that we have enforcement mechanism in place to be able to enforce designation. That's our main concern, and that's what we're trying to push through to policymakers. And of course, um, we also need to ensure that we continuously um, mitigate the risk of electricity costs, because if there's an increase in electricity costs, it's going to reduce the competitiveness of the sector. That's our cause for concern. But all in all, generally, there's support from policymakers and, uh, and um, stakeholders. Michael Aid, I appreciate your time, Doctor, there, just uh, for sharing the thoughts there and uh, perhaps a, a really encouraging sign for the metal engineering sector, which is set for a third consecutive year of growth. Dr. Michael Aid is chief economist uh, there at uh, CIFSA. Uh, and and it, as I said, it has been quite an interesting one across the board, if you think about it, because the sector has, has struggled for quite some time, seeing a few companies uh, struggle to, to stay afloat. 
and the Steel and Engineering Industries Federation of Southern Africa saying things could look still okay and a little bit better for at least another year. So some interesting thoughts there coming through from the doctor. Appreciate your time this morning. Let's get to your traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. 7.42. We now shall focus to the findings of the Yoko Small Business Pulse for the fourth quarter of last year. And some of the key findings include that uh, despite the third quarter and the fourth quarter downturn in the business confidence overall, uh, small businesses remain optimistic with an overall uh, pulse score of 32. But to talk to us about the findings of it is uh, Matthew Brunel, who is the head of brand marketing at uh, Yoko. Matthew, thank you so much for your time this morning i mean we've had you guys uh i think a couple of months ago in our entrepreneurship feature we had the founders on but let's talk about this pulse why the need to create a small business pulse thank you for the opportunity i mean i think the core reason why we created it is because our customers we have about thirty-five thousand of them across the country um 85 percent of which uh, have turnovers of less than a million rand and they're constantly telling us that the thing that they really are lacking is data and information. So one of the most commonly questions we get asked at Yoko is, how am I doing relative to my industry? How are other small businesses doing? What's confidence looking like out there? We get this feedback all the time. We never had any mechanism to say to them, well, this is what uh, we believe the environment is doing or how the climate is looking right now. So we created this pulse to really create, I guess, a, a kind of small business confidence index it's not attempting to be as robust and quantitative as the business confidence index which is done, uh, which everyone is quite aware of in terms of big business. Uh, but it certainly gives us a really interesting perspective on how small business is doing out there and how they're feeling about their prospects and, and their growth future. So how does the Pulse work? It's quite simple. Um, we survey our 35,000 uh, customers. We get a response rate of somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000. Um, they cross every industry, uh, every geography in the country. So a really good spread of businesses. And we asked them five questions with regards to how their business is doing in terms of current performance, future growth prospects, future profitability prospects of the next 12 months, whether they intend to employ any more people, and how they feel about the general business environment. And, and we then create a composite score with zero being neutral, minus 100 being extremely negative, and plus 100 being extremely positive. And the Pulse score for both Q3 and Q4 has come out at 32, so significantly above neutral, um, and just showing a general sense of positivity among small businesses across the country. The score is then broken down further by industry or by geography, and we do see some quite significant swings depending on what kind of business we're talking to and where they are located and what industry that they're in. All right. So I gave a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, what small businesses are thinking when it comes to uh, their confidence. What else have you found out uh, from your findings? I think one of the most interesting things for us is that the most positive businesses, those that feel that their growth prospects um, are, have, the, have the biggest chance of success, tend to be the smaller businesses with the smaller number of employees. That is where there is uh, quite a significant degree of positivity. I mean, businesses that are sort of less than a year old and employ two people or less gave us a score of uh, 42 in the last quarter, whereas businesses that are greater than seven years old, uh, the score was all the way down to 22. 
So the older, the more established businesses, those that are have, have, have had a growth process, have, have sort of a, a degree of growth over the last few years, tend to be slowing down and struggling. Whereas the newer businesses are certainly telling us that they expect to grow fastest and that they are looking to employ more people, which is a super positive thing to see. Um, we also see between Q3 and Q4 certain industries showing significant spikes, like as you'd expect, travel and tourism, uh, significantly more positive after what seems like a pretty good uh, quarter four for them. We also then correlate the answers that we get from the survey and compare them to the data that we have through the 35,000 card machines uh, that are used across the country by our customers. And we did see that in Q4, on, a, on the same base from year to year, quite a significant increase in sales um, through the credit card machines that we provide, uh, a 10.7% uplift, which was quite a lot bigger than the Q3 number of 5.3%. So we are seeing some really interesting insights and data coming through. We also do do a deep dive every quarter into one aspect of business that is particularly interesting. Uh, this one was on the use of technology amongst small businesses, which also showed some quite fascinating insights, uh, which we weren't aware of. Matthew, unfortunately, we are running out of time, but we definitely would love to have you guys back on the show just to get into the aspects around small businesses and the adoption rate for technology. But that is Matthew Bronnell, who is the head of brand marketing at Yokot, talking about their small business pulse. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's just gone 7.49, so we continue to take a look at what might come out this week and things that are, uh, of course, making news headlines. Very quickly, resignation of directors as well coming out. Um, Woolworth says that uh, shareholders are hereby notified that Mrs. Gail Kelly and Mr. Patrick Alloway have resigned as independent non-executive directors of the company with um, immediate effect. Uh, Gail Kelly served as a member of the Nomination Remuneration Sustainability Risk and Compliance Committee while uh, um, having seen uh, Patrick Alloway there uh, be part and serve as a member of the Audit Treasury Remuneration Risk and Compliance Committee during their respective tenure on the board. So as uh, Woolworth saying there that those two members of the board have now resigned with immediate effect. Um, it seems, however, as well that uh, this is uh, you know an- another week where we get a resignation at this company. Last week we saw um, a board member, or the, rather the CEO of David Jones, uh, one of their subsidiaries, resign as well. That's the third CEO in five years resigning. Are things a little bit worrisome at uh, at Woolworths, Greg Davies from uh, Kratos Capital? Yeah, that, that business that I bought in Australia, the David Jones, it seems to have been a folly there. And, it, it, and the more money which they're throwing in it, 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 it seems to be pointless, really. That share price reflecting, it's probably down 30% from, from this time last year. It's certainly down half from, from the all-time highs. But uh, for top senior management to be leaving at, at this rate is a concern. Yeah, it is. It certainly, certainly is a concern. Just with other news as well, uh, with regards to this week, we are expecting unemployment numbers. Uh, the uh, quarterly labor force survey is expected out, and that's tomorrow. So it's around tomorrow at around 11 o'clock or so, uh, I think 11.30. Investec saying that they expect unemployment to moderate, if there is such a thing with our empl- unemployment numbers, to 27.1% from 275 um, uh, but they are saying, however, that this um, hiring is typically reversed in the following quarter. So things won't necessarily look that good 
on a sustainable basis. It just continues to hurt, right? We haven't done anything by the seams of things um, to, to be able to, to help us with that unemployment problem. Yeah, it was an interesting article by Mark Schussler on the on the Money Web page last week, Monday or Tuesday, saying worldwide, wherever you look at a country which has got twenty percent unemployment, that normally leads to a change in the in the the ruling party. Mm. But in our case, it doesn't doesn't seem possible. And it doesn't seem like we want to change anything by the looks of things. We keep having the same sort of sentiments. We keep having uh, multiple sort of summits in Dabas or whatever the case may be. We have pacts of growing and, 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 uh, and improving the job scenario by adding 275,000 jobs according to the job summit pact last year. But um, if you just take a look at how many jobs were um, or how many people entered the workforce between 2008 and 2018, it's a minimum of 3.2 million people, which equates to 320,000 uh, in, in that same space of time. So that in itself says that we aren't even going to be able to fit in uh, all the people that enter the workforce. Just ask yourself that question. Are we then setting ourselves up for failure and should we be considering uh, a little bit more strict and stringent uh, processes in this regard? Also coming out this week, the um, we're going to get manufacturing production uh, forecast to have grown as well in December. Uh, production growth is expected at 1.8% year-on-year in the month of December from 1.6% previously. Operating conditions, however, in the sector are expected to remain challenging, though. Uh, we also expected to get retail sales numbers, and that is forecast to have moderated to 2% in December from 3.1% year-on-year in November. Um, it is, of course, uh, a lot of that coming through from those Black Friday and Cyber Monday discounts and those sales. So that may have certainly um, looked to have uh, shaped things up with regards to retail sales. Uh, as well so retail manufacturing and mining production is usually a barometer as well of the health of south africa's economy and as we look to exit that last quarter of course it'll be significant to see how things fare on that front i've got a fun fact but it's not really a fun fact it's just an info piece of news that we can all think about there's an article that's very interesting on the money website written by hilton tarrant and it asks the question why doesn't apsa have a successor to ramos and uh concluding that perhaps this is nothing less than a failure of the board which you know based on the arguments made in this article i have to agree that it is kind of peculiar that we didn't have a CEO de- designate in the mm. 12 to 18 months from which Maria Ramos had first announced that she did want to leave uh, ABSA. So that's an article you can have a look at. Yeah, one would say as well that the uh, former uh, deputy CEO as well having left, uh, I think he was aimed and primed to be the mm. successor and things didn't go so well uh, on that front and he ended up leaving. And I guess it left that gaping hole. We'll see how things fare on that front. Uh, as well um just very quickly as well zimbabwe should adopt the rand as its currency that's one of a series of fundamental reforms needed to restore economic stability in the country that's according to the country's former finance minister tendai bt he called his call is an endorsement of the government's efforts to link zimbabwe's economy 
to South Africa's currency as it grapples with a foreign exchange shortage that has spawned the fastest price increases since hyperinflation a decade ago. So we'll see how things fare on that front. Now, we thought we'd talk about another topic here very quickly and just how expensive it is and how difficult the scenario is as well for the workplace. When you have things like sexual harassment, bullying, victimization, all of that comes into play and certainly gets to hurt any company and it must be dealt with swiftly and speedily. We'll chat now to Kim Lebotsky, uh, who is uh, director at Dremic as well there, to help us sort of unpack this topic just a little bit more. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for your time this morning and we really uh, appreciate it. The prevalence of sexual harassment seems to have continued to grow. Uh, how big a deal uh, has it been made out to be, as it should, of course, but how big has it, uh, has it grown to in South Africa and are we doing enough to curb it? Um, good morning, Arabile, Nastasia, and to the listeners. Um, Sean Brown, Director of Sean Brown Attorneys Incorporated, is with me this morning. Um, in terms of the prevalence and um, that of uh, sexual harassment and bullying, um, sexual harassment, bullying, victimization is creating toxic working environments and is fast becoming a pandemic in South Africa. People are stressed in the workplace and the toxic environments are making them ill. People are afraid of losing their employment in these tough, tough economic times and therefore tolerate unbecoming behavior. Being a survivor of sexual harassment, bullying and victimization in the workplace, it was evident that HR, company attorneys and executive management had to protect the company's reputation, especially in light of the perpetrator being a senior executive. These areas of harassment are extremely prevalent in the workplace today, but are covered up and in majority of the cases, the victim gets bullied, victimized, and in turn leaves the workplace, whereby the company sheds a sigh of relief. Yeah, and... You know, I suppose then the acceptance of it, if you, if, if we can call it that for lack of a better term in that front, does make it seem like it's, it's okay. How do we get, you know, more people involved in, in, in denouncing it, in reporting it, in doing something about it when it is reported as well? Because sometimes it is reported and some feel that nothing or insufficient uh, measures are put in place afterwards. How do we fix that? Um, Arabile, you're 100% correct there. No, not enough is being done about this in our country. People are afraid to report these matters, and in turn, the workplaces become toxic as people are afraid. These are matters that companies tend to want to sweep under the carpet, get these matters in-house, and hope that the victim in turn leaves the company. In my experience, when a formal complaint is made, HR panic, executive management worry about brand damage, company attorneys want to save their good standing with the company, their client, and in turn, who's left out in the cold? The victim. We believe as Dremic and Sean Brown Attorneys Incorporated, we can make this difference for victims to be treated fairly without HR or the company having to get their hands dirty. 
certainly a matter I hope we continue to pursue vigorously and and tackle really, really hard. It it deserves no place in any workplace, in any society for that matter. And uh, we really, really appreciate your time, Kim, uh, this morning. Kim Lebotsky, who is director at Dremic, uh, joining us this morning as we chat just about that sexual harassment, bullying and victimization in the workplace. How hurtful, uh, how destructive it is uh, as well. So... Tash, that does bring us a, a little bit to, to the closeout of the show, but I wanted to quickly touch on uh, Net One, which seems to be struggling at the hands of Cell C, and that seems to be hurting some of their uh, their investments as well. Uh, it seems that uh, they've sh- their stake in Celsius shrunk by $15.8 million because of network operators' troubles. Cell C, they're continuing to struggle and stay afloat, if I can call it that. Uh, as well there so a lot could be said for for celsi and i suppose the whole tech sector right mtn and vodacom continuing their struggles too but that brings us to the end of today's show tash yes uh and we're going to do that thing where the market yep. watch is going to be on the spot again uh we'll be back tomorrow with uh, some really great news and uh, i'm looking forward to our cappuccino with the ceo later this week um that's it for me yeah and it's goodbye from us it's eight o'clock